Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Hey, y'all. Welcome. Uh, man, it is uh, I'm emotional uh, being here. So um, the very first time I met James, I was uh, 21 years old. We met uh, in East Texas, Tyler, Texas. Um, and I saw this uh, big Uncle Phil looking dude. And, <laughs> and um, I remember... The very first interaction that I had with James, uh, it was a college retreat, and um, like I worked really, really hard on these little sheets because I wanted to help foster and create a sense of community um, there, and um, nobody else said anything about the sheets, and James came up to me, and he read this, and he's like, yo, did you do this? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, man, this is really good. You should keep on. Um, And that was one of the first pieces of encouragement that helped me feel like, oh, maybe maybe this is something that I should do. Um, uh, Fast forward a couple of years, and I was a young pastor in Atlanta, and James came down and we pastored together. Um, And amongst a whole host of things, I remember one day, uh, James, you probably don't, don't even know this. Um, it was like Easter Sunday. And for anybody that's familiar with church, um, Easter's, you know, the Super Bowl Sunday. And um, I was a young pastor and they let uh, me preach. And um, I preached. And normally I'm not a fan of superlatives, right? Like best and worst. Uh, but I think I preached the worst sermon that could have been preached. And so we had two services. So I had to like lament the fact like, dang, I've got to go and strike out again, right? So I go downstairs into my office. um, I close the doors. I turn off the lights and I just sit underneath my desk and everybody walks by, where's John? Where's John? And I'm like, this is terrible. Um, the, the next week, me and James start to talk, and James says something about uh, preaching, probably one of the most profound things that has shaped me. And we were just in a convo, and James was like, hey, John, man, um, you do know that there aren't any rules. Feel free. Just use your voice. Speak how God um, has laid it on your heart. And that was a turning and pivot point um, in my life. And there's so many other things from the way that James, you know, welcomed and, you know, mentored my late brother to the role that he's played and, you know, my life, my family's life. And um, 10 years ago, when James was getting ready to move uh, up here, uh, all I felt was a profound sense of sadness because I felt like I was going to lose uh, my friend, and um, 10 years later, like, I'm here, and I look out of here, or I look 
from up here and there is not an ounce of sadness. I'm overjoyed. And so, yeah, uh, y'all don't know me, but just know that I've been praying for y'all for the past decade. Um, I love y'all. It is an honor uh, to be here. And they started my clock when I was saying all these nice words about James. So <laughs> let me pray um, and we'll jump in. If you're able, why don't y'all stand with me uh, and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter six. My clock's going, so I'm actually not gonna wait on you to find it. The words are gonna be here <laughs> on the screen. Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. Um, and it says this. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The 12 summoned the whole company of disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Um, our Father, we come to you today as people uh, that are praying, not just as ritual or routine, but we're praying uh, because we realize and acknowledge the fact that we are needy, Father. We're praying in hope uh, because we know that our neediness is not a liability, Father. Um, it is an asset, especially if we stand in need of you, our great God, who has no needs, but you're willing and able to meet our every need, even the ones we're unaware about right now, God. So we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would calm our anxious hearts. We pray that you would fill us with wisdom and with your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't y'all take your seats? Uh, the church is under attack. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. The church is under attack. Um, even if you don't feel it, it's true. When it comes to the move of God, one thing that is consistent in this fallen, fractured, and broken world that we live in is that wherever God seeks to move, there aren't any movements of God in this world that go unopposed. It's a storyline that started at the beginning and it's the same one over and over and over, like every Tyler Perry movie that you've seen, right? God, God creates this world. It's beautiful. It's complete. He places his children in this world. And you can't even turn a page in the Bible before 
You see God's work, the family that he's trying to create, you can't even turn a page before you see God's work being pushed back against, trying to be undone. The church, God's people, have always been under attack. There are terrors that face the church. When you think of terrors that face the church, what comes to your mind? Often we may think of big, scary things like, you know, ISIS, uh, Boko Haram, and you hear the stories of Christians being beheaded and Christians being burned at the stake. You think of the world that we live in today um, that talks a whole lot about tolerance, but then as soon as you get a group of people that say, hey, wait a minute, um, I actually believe that there was a man that died and rose from the dead. And so by rising from the dead, we're convinced that his words carry a different kind of weight. Um, so I'm going to agree with and try my best to follow the things that he says about how I should live and carry out my sexuality and the way that I spend my money and the way that I forgive people. And our world is very tolerant until we start saying things like that. The church is under attack. Because the church is under attack, we can tend to fear things and be filled with a sense of anxiety and worry. Is the next big thing that faces the church, is that going to threaten the move of God in the world? Is that going to be a lampshade that dims the glory of the display of what God's trying to do in the world? Maybe you're here and you're new to the church thing or you just came here with a friend um, and you don't consider yourself a believer or a Christian at all. And you may say things like, John, um, I'm not really concerned or I don't care about that church stuff. I'm more concerned about more deeper human problems. The unhoused people that find themselves cold and frozen. The kids that go without Meals. If you're from a place like I'm from, I live in a community in Atlanta that is historically has been poor and disenfranchised and literally right across the street from the poorest neighborhood in Atlanta where there are city streets that haven't been paved in 30 years. A few years ago, they built a $1.6 billion stadium. You see the injustices that go on in the world and you say, I don't get why Christians are so mad and angry and who cares about the church trying to grow and expand. I'm concerned about things more human. If that's you, I would say, um, I think that you and I are actually closer than you might think. That when I say that I want the church to grow and expand, I believe that the church is the hope of the world. And that's just shorthand for me saying, I want all the same things that you do. I just believe that the church is God's present, yet incomplete, idealized picture of the future kingdom that he's trying to bring into the world. So the justice that we want to see out there, I feel like it's presented in a beta version here inside of the church, and I just want to see this thing grow and expand, I think we share this common thing that we know that things are broken in the world and we want to see them made better. So when I say I want the church to grow, that's all that I'm trying to say. Um, and I think 
when we talk about what we want to do, we realize that there are hindrances and roadblocks and things that we have to fight against. And we find ourselves in an intense fight to make this a reality. And do you know the only thing that's worse than an intense fight? An incorrect fight. The wrong fight. Spending all your energy fighting somebody or something. And even if you win... You look up and you realize, oh, um, I've actually been fighting the wrong person, and now I have no strength to fight this person that's at full strength. And I think sometimes when we talk about the church being under attack, we can spend so much of our time, our energy, our emotional strength fighting problems that are big but are not the biggest problem facing the church. What if I told you... Um, that the biggest problem facing the church isn't necessarily the most visible problem. That when we talk about the church growing and expanding, there are outward problems, but there are also these inward pitfalls. Um, the church is this platform. Uh, and the thing that you find out about a platform is that platforms are benign. They are not good or bad. They are not a vice or a virtue. They are a vehicle. The most important thing about a platform is what the platform is presenting. Put the most pristine and beautiful mic up to the lips of a bad singer and you will drive people away. We all talk about a church wanting to grow and to be big and expand. Uh, you uh, find a church that is very, very big and bad, and you find a platform that drives people further from Jesus faster than anything else. So we do want the church to grow and expand, but we want to make sure that they're Good churches. Bad churches, and I want you to hear this and hear the whole thing. Um, bad churches need to die so that they can be resurrected. We believe in a resurrection, right? But we want those things to come to life to create a beautiful picture of God to draw people into him. Basically, all that I'm trying to say is that we want God's grace to be multiplied in the world. And in order for that to take place, um, we're going to have to identify what may be the biggest problem to that. After we identify what the pitfall is, or the way that we are going to do that is we're going to see where it begins, how it's resolved, and what we can do right now. And for that, we're going to turn to Acts um, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we're at just a little bit uh, of context. One of the things that you're going to see as we get into Acts 6 is this. Um, sin is like dust, okay? Um, have you ever like stored things in a room and you dusted it off and you cleaned it before you put it in the room and you made sure that the room was clean and pristine, all the doors were locked, you even put a towel underneath the door so nothing could get in and you go back into the room and what do you find on the stuff? Dust. We don't know how it gets in there, but it, 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 it makes its way into the room and the reason why I bring that up is because sin is like dust. And what I mean is this. 
If every external problem or force or threat facing the church was solved or resolved today, the church would still be in incredible danger. Do you know why? Because sin is like dust. It's going to find its way in. So the most important thing to take care of dust in your house is not to create a room that's dust proof because there is no such thing. The most important thing is for you to have a rhythm where dust is routinely spotted, cleaned, and checked. The problem that we make is when we talk about the goodness and the beauty and the safety of church, we often use safety in such a way that people hear perfection. And I want you to know this, the church is meant to be a safe place, but it's not a perfect place. Um, I got a business degree in college. I was not a great student. The only thing that I learned and remembered was this, um, you do not want to overpromise and underdeliver. Um, and Often what causes people the biggest frustration with the church is they come in and they get overpromised. Um, they believe that this is some dustproof place. And what we're saying is, no, 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 no. This is not dustproof. Uh, we just have a regular rhythm to maintain and to make sure that we sweep um, all of this dust off. So here's what takes place in Acts 6. The gospel is exploding because broken people are honest about their problems. They find a real solution in a community of people centered around the words of a man that died and rose from the grave for their sins, and that spreads. That spreads, and we see this church in a world that's similar to ours. So in the book of Acts, in the early church, one of the things that you're going to find is the church is facing all these external threats. Persecution, pestilence, famine, being imprisoned for their faith. And never in any one of those cases do the disciples step back and say, hey, y'all, we need to shut everything down and call an all-church meeting. But there is one problem that causes them to say, all right, hey, y'all, this is so important that actually the most important thing that we could do is have everybody shut things down. This is not a let's build the plane as we fly it. This is, it's so important. This threatens to rip apart the fabric of what God has been trying to do from the beginning. We've got to solve this right now or nothing else that we do is going to matter. Look at the problem. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1 through 2. And it says this. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Look. The 12 summoned the whole company of disciples. In the book of Acts, you're only going to see that sentiment in two places, Acts 6 and Acts 15, where they find themselves in issues where ethnic tension threatens to rip apart the church at the seams. The biggest problem facing the church here is not external disaster, it's internal disunity. Tornadoes can tear down homes. 
but so can termites. And termites are more dangerous because nobody reports on the news that they're coming. There are no alarms that, that they are going to come. But a house can crumble and implode by neglect. The first thing that we're going to see is this. Look, simple physical neglect can lead to major spiritual disunity. Simple physical neglect can lead to major spiritual disunity. What we have here is you've got two groups, all right? You've got these Greek widows and these Jewish widows. And what they're saying, what you see here is that the Greek widows are in the minority of, of this church. This is not overt racism. This is not overt punishment. This is a small group being overlooked. And the disciples say, this is so important, shut things down. Imagine, Paul is already kicking in people's doors and pulling them out the homes. And they're saying, that's not important for us to bring everybody together in the same room. Peter and John have been thrown in jail, beaten and flogged. That's not important for us to bring folks into the same room. People will be beheaded. That's not important enough for us to bring folks into the same room. A minority group is overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Shut it down. We got to fix this or it's not going to be solved. Do you know why? Because when it comes to church, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the faith that we have, if you want to understand the Christian faith, family is going to be the one word that is going to be most important. This is what I mean. You look at every other religion, and when it comes to the supreme God, ruler, or creator, the reference that they give to him, the primary one is meant for you to understand what they believe is the most important thing about him. So they'll talk about God as creator, and the most important thing about him is that he made things and that he rules. They'll talk about God's might and power, and the most important thing about him is that he's a supreme king and a sovereign. When Christians talk about God, do you know the Christian name for God? Father. Because God wants us to see, no, 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 the most important thing about him is his loving care for us and the relationship that he wants to bring us in. So he reveals himself through his son. He helps us feel that special love through his spirit. God fundamentally wants us to know that we're a family because he is father. And this is why this issue is so important because it is a tragedy. When anybody dies from starvation, it is reprehensible and inexcusable to have a family member die of starvation while there's plenty of food in the house. I was a young pastor, so I started to pastor at 22 years old, pastored for 16 years. Um, this is early on in one of the first years in our church. I think I'm 25 years old at the time. I've probably been to three funerals in my life, I get a call from a sister that's a part of our church. She's a social worker and she says, hey John, I need you to do a funeral. 
And I said, okay. She said, um, it's for a 16-year-old girl. And so I'm like, all right, you, like, talk to me about the details. I don't know like, what to do about all this. And she said, all right, well, um, her mother got mad and upset with her. So her mom locked her in her room. She had two other kids at the time that she fed. By the time that CPS uh, found the girl, she was 50 pounds and dead in her room. And you sit back. And that was just etched in my mind. And you realize um, neglect is not passive. Neglect is a very active form of hatred. How much do you have to hate somebody to neglect them when this is here and you have this group of people that are feeling neglected in the church, in the family of God, and they're saying, we've got to stop it. And the reason why I bring that up is because we live in a world that talks a whole lot about the benefits and the virtues of diversity, and that is fine, that is well and good. There's a diverse crowd out here that is very beautiful. The United States is the most diverse country to exist in the history of the world. But I just want us all to remember and to know diversity doesn't do what we think that it does. I was in India um, 2018 and um, I made the mistake of exchanging way more money than I needed. When I came back, I was in a rush, and so I didn't have time to exchange it back. So I had a pocket full of rupees, right? Yeah, yeah, dollar bills. Um, it was a lot of money, probably $200 worth. Um, I remember I was walking down the street, and I came across a houseless uh, man that asked for a sandwich. And I reached into my pocket and I pulled it out and all I had were rupees. Um, the rupees were inherently valuable. I mean, it was worth $200, but it was practically worthless. I could give it to him and spend my time explaining to him how it's valuable and how it means all that. But my explanations would have done nothing to feed his empty stomach. So often we live in a world where the church wants to talk a whole lot about diversity as if the people outside there are saying, would you look at that diversity? Look at what that does. I've been to a J. Cole concert, walked out of State Farm Arena, um, and I've seen a crowd that is just as diverse as this. And do you know what that diverse crowd did? Um, that diverse crowd stepped over every houseless person on their way to Waffle House to eat food that, or to buy food that they were not going to eat. That diversity was not great currency. Solidarity and unity is a better currency. Those people that were in desperate need would not be fed by the beautiful picture of diversity. They would be fed by a diverse group of people having unity aimed at solving their problem. Diversity isn't the end goal that we think that it is. Where the church of God is 
divided. God's grace is incredibly minimized. What you have here is an incredible danger to the church, and I want you to know the danger was not terrorism. The danger was thoughtlessness. And the disciples say, this is so important. We've got to shut everything down and fix it. Here's what I love uh, that takes place here. The complaint came up, and do you know what didn't take place? <laughs> Defensiveness. The complaint came up, and, and it was just, no, no, no. Look, this is an objective fact. They're passing out the boxes, and by the time they're done with the boxes, do you know who doesn't have boxes? The Greek widows. And what they did was they sat back and they didn't view it as an indictment. It was just an indicative statement. And they realized it was important, even though it was small. Y'all, where honest neglect happens, disunity can tend to follow. So it changes how we judge a danger. We do not judge a danger by its initial impact. We judge the size of a danger by its eventual yield, what it will eventually do, what it could eventually do. You get an MRI or a scan and you see a cancerous spot, you don't leave it alone and just say, it's just a small spot. You say, oh, no, no, no. Initially, it may not cause any problems, but eventually, this thing can spread across the whole. And I think that the disciples knew that this small thing could tear a rift in God's people, and this small breach could maximize, or, uh, or maximize and expand and undo the very thing that God has been trying to do from the beginning. You have to ask yourself this question. How many relationships do you have that are filled with resentment right now and you don't even remember why you're resentful? How many of them can you just look at folks and say, man, just something about him I don't like. And somebody asks you, what is it? And you're like, I don't know, I can't even remember, but I'm gonna hold on to all of this. That's how simple acts of neglect can start to threaten to ruin the church, especially this. When we pray for our churches to be the hands and feet of God, and we pray that God would send in the single mothers, we pray that God would send in the outcasts, we pray that God would send in those that are weighed down by addiction and these deep needs. And if you fill a church with people that have these deep needs and you do not have the careful attention to ensure all of those needs are met, all you're doing is bringing people and giving them a front row seat to them witnessing in their bodies that God doesn't care about them. Simple physical neglect can lead to major spiritual disunity. But I love that the problem doesn't stop there. Look at what takes place right here. 
starting in verse 3, it says this, Brothers and sisters, I love that when they start fixing the problem, they put it back on the church and say, yo, brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to do. I want you to select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit, look, and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, and the rest of the names that I'm going to mispronounce. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. If simple physical neglect can lead to major spiritual disunity, I want you to know this. Um, fighting for unity in the church, solidarity, is a part of your job description. Fighting for unity is a part of your job description. You can tell the importance of a problem um, yeah, uh, y'all can sit there. That's my stuff, so yeah. Sorry to call y'all out for being late, but glad to have you. <laughs> glad to have you. Um, you can tell the importance of a problem by the people that are involved in solving that problem. The amount of people that you include shows you the importance of a problem. Every four years, citizens of our entire nation are included in solving the problem of who's gonna be in the highest office. Um, Dave Chappelle in an interview said he was in France once and somebody came to him and said, um, your president is so important for what goes on in the rest of the world that everybody in the world should have a vote. The size of a problem is often seen by the amount of people that are involved in it. And what takes place here is the whole church is involved in this because this is a problem that cannot be solved by a small group of staff and volunteers. It's going to take every set of eyeballs, every set of hands that are a part of the, the, the church. When we first moved into the West End, uh, people would get their homes broken into all the time, and they thought that the best way to solve things was by putting a ring cam on their front door until they realized um, criminals are actually smarter than that. And so where they see, oh, there is, if I go through the front door, I'll be seen. Let me go through the side door or the back door. So people started to see, oh, if we're really going to solve this problem, we actually need cameras everywhere. And the more sets of eyes that we have, the better to ensure that there's no blind spots for criminals to creep in. The exact same thing takes place in the life of the church. If you're relying on the pastors and the leaders and the staff to care for everybody in the life of the church, you're relying on a ring cam to ensure that no neglect breaks in through the front door. You actually have to have cameras everywhere to ensure that nobody's needs go unmet. So that's what they do here. We live in a consumeristic world 
where you get to define what is valuable and important. In a family, things are different. You don't have the same freedom of choice to define what is important. Uh, the most important thing is that you answer who is important. And then that who tells you what you should value. Um, I'm 39 years old. I know all the words to all the song from The Little Mermaid, Moana, Beauty and the Beast, and a whole list of other movies about melodramatic teenage girls trying to find their identity by breaking away from parents and family. Um, it's not because I particularly enjoy that genre of film. Do you know why? Because in 2020, when we were in the pandemic, we had one television and a three-year-old daughter. And my daughter was the who that was important. And that was important to her. So my what was important was filtered through who? Because she was my family. Remember how I talked about the church was a family? Unfortunately, you do not get to determine what is important for you outside of the who's that you're sitting next to. God is going to show you what is most important through the who's that you are committed to. That's what it means to be a part of a family. The gospel gives us this truth that we don't get to pick the who, Jesus does. What I love about what takes place here in this story is there's a few things, right? They respond to this problem very wisely. The very first one is this. Um, they correct the injustice. Disunity takes place in the church. And do you know how they don't get unity? By talking about unity. You do not get unity by talking about unity. That is to confuse the end goal with the pathway. I want you to hear this. Um, unity is not a vice or a virtue. Unity is a vehicle. Unity is, or, or it, it's not a vice or a virtue. Unity is a vehicle for something. The Nazis were unified. Unified about the wrong thing, right? The, right the, the Los Angeles Lakers, for the most part, are unified, but nobody really likes them, right? It's, a, it's not a vice or a virtue, it's a vehicle. What's most important is what the unity is about. And at the end of the day, what you'll find um, is this. Uh, unity's not an end goal. Unity is a byproduct of something else. Solidarity where you have a group of people that share in a concern about something, you get unity, you get diversity, right? Um, the civil rights movement did not set out to be a diverse movement as if diversity was some end goal. Remember, it's currency that is inherently valuable but practically worthless. What you had was a group of folks that said, wait a minute, black and brown people are deprived of their rights, and I think that's bad. Does anybody agree with me? 
And you had a whole host of people that were diverse, that agreed, and you had this powerful movement that was diverse. Unity, diversity are byproducts of a deep solidarity. We do not get it by talking about unity. You get unity by correcting the injustice, the thing that stood in the way. You don't get unity by telling two children that are fighting to hug it out. You don't get unity by telling a society that's, that's had a brick wall of injustice built up. Often, while denominations were the architects and bricklayers, hug it out. You have a group of folks that say, no, no, no. They're, I would hug it out, but there's actually a brick wall of injustice standing in between us. If we ever are going to hug things out, do you know what we have to do? We have to correct the injustice. Look at what takes place here in Acts 6. Greek widows aren't fed. They say, hey, y'all, Greek lives matter. The leaders at the church do not get defensive. They say, do you know what? You're right. And we never want minority in this group to be equated with less than important. So do you know what they do? The whole church comes together. And the whole church, of which this Greek group is the minority, picks seven people. Here's where we miss out on things in the Bible. We read genealogies and names that we cannot pronounce and our eyes glaze over. But I wish y'all would know that there are gems in the genealogies. Do you know what takes place here? Not a single name on that list is Hebrew. Every name is Greek. So what this church does, a church made up of largely Jewish people, they say, man, the Greek widows are overlooked. It's so important. We don't want this to take place. Let's make sure that we stack the deck in favor of the people that are overlooked so that this never happens again. The injustice was corrected. It was fixed, and this unity and this love was a byproduct. But I don't think they just came up with that idea on the spot. In 6-4, the disciples say, no, no, look, look, all right, let's do this, but it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the duty that we have. We still need to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and Prayer. This is hearing from God through what he says in his word, speaking back to God in this ongoing conversation with God. And what you find is that when you're in this ongoing conversation with the God of the Bible, who has written 85% of this book as a narrative, you're constantly drawn into the gospel story. And you know what you find in this story? Um, in Acts 6, the people in charge were so busy with the things that they had to do that it was an honest mistake. It was a simple act of neglect. They were human. 
limited. They overlooked the needs. They overlooked the needs of a certain group. Across humanity, what you have is God, our Father, responsible for all of our needs, and he's never overlooked one. The problem is not with God overlooking our needs. It's with us overlooking God's goodness and kindness. Ecclesiastes is all about, is this book all about the frustration that we find when we don't look beyond the sun for our joy, but we look under the sun for our joy in accomplishments, in status, in clothes, in relationships, in people. And our sight line is always horizontal, never looking up at God, a God who's never forgotten us. We overlook him. So do you know what God does? He stacks the deck in our favor. He says, all right, where's your sight line? I'm going to send my son down to meet you on your sight line. So Jesus comes down and he lives in this world as a human. And I love that my sister read from John 5. There's an interesting passage in scripture from John chapter 3 through 5 where we see Jesus's interaction with four people. Two important people and two unimportant people. Two folks that the world would love to check for and two people that the world would overlook. John chapter three, Nicodemus, a religious leader. John chapter four, a Samaritan widow. The end of John four, a religious guard leader or, or a Roman uh, official, John chapter 5, the man that's been sitting on his bed for 38 years. And do you know the interesting thing that you see about that, those stories? Nicodemus and the Roman official, the people at the top of the food chain, they approach Jesus. Jesus goes to the woman. Jesus goes to the man in his bed. Jesus is showing, no, God's never forsaken you. God hasn't forgotten you. Even if you find yourself in places where you feel overlooked and forgotten, Jesus is constantly ensuring that anybody that feels overlooked or marginalized has his full, complete, and undivided attention, and people feel a deep sense of value and dignity and worth. And they wish that the world could be like this. And right when Jesus starts to get his buzz, do you know what takes place? Their hopes are crushed. He dies. He goes into a grave. On the cross, Jesus, who never forsook anybody or overlooked the needs of the marginalized, had to cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced that being forsaken so that you and I would never have to. And the people that followed him mourned because they knew what it was like to be in the presence of somebody who took that kind of care and concern to people that couldn't give anything. And then a few days later, Jesus rose from the dead. As he rose from the dead, he said, um, like one pastor said, um, it's actually better for my spirit to be inside you than for it to just be beside you. 
So what he does is he fills his church with his spirit so that now people don't have to go and make an excursion to the Middle East to spend their time with one man who for the three years that Jesus lived, he only occupied a small physical space, the distance from Houston to Dallas and 40 miles wide. But instead of that, he, he said, no, no, no. What if I filled everybody that puts their trust in me with that same spirit. Can you imagine what the world would be like if people said, no, no, listen, you can be overlooked and neglected and thrown out everywhere else, but if you step into the church of God, if you step into 345 Adams, right? I couldn't find it this morning, that is, right? Yeah. Yo, if you step into the bridge church, it's different here. That's the goal. That's what God wants to see take place where the church is unified towards that end. God's grace is maximized. The church's unity is merely an open invitation to anyone who feels themselves an orphan or an outcast. So the question that you have to ask yourself is this, um, how has God called you to contribute to that unity? Um, I started and I say, yo, uh, simple acts of physical neglect can lead to major spiritual disunity. Um, the good news is that truth works in reverse. It doesn't take much and it doesn't take a long time. The end of this passage says this, look, so the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The best news about this story is they didn't even have time to get their systems like that tight. People just saw, I'm seen, I'm valued. As I bring my needs to the forefront, People aren't gaslighting me for saying, I feel disconnected. I feel broken. I feel overlooked. They brought their concerns to the forefront and they said, no, look, sin can make us neglectful. And they found themselves in a community that didn't think of themselves as dust proof. But they said, no, we have regular rhythms to make sure that we get rid of that dust. And I want y'all to know, this is all that it takes. There was this thing that we used to do. We'd, we'd bring folks into the crib and we would say, hey, can, can, uh, can you balance a broom on your hand? And you would get folks and they would spend all of their time and they'd look at their hand and they would have this whole broom and nobody could do it. And they're like, man, I'd have to learn. It would take all of this time. And we said, no, no, what if I could give you an instant fix? And they're like, there's no way that you could instantly fix that. And I said, yes, I can. Uh, but it has nothing to do with your hands or your balance. It's got everything to do with your eyes. If you look here, you're never going to balance that broom. If you take your eyes and put it at the top of the broom and look at the top 
and you look up instead of down, what you find is that a task that you felt was impossible now becomes incredibly easy. Uh, what if I told you that the problems when it comes to unity in the church um, are not impossible problems to solve? What if I told you that the problem is, um, I think your eyes are aimed in the wrong direction. I think you need to look up. Here's a practical way that we can do that. Um, in the Bible, uh, and you don't even have to look for it in the Bible, go to Google when you get home and type in one another verses in the Bible. And you're going to get a huge list of all of these verses. Care for one another. Pray for one another. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. And do you know what you can do? Every Sunday morning, before you make your way into these doors, pick one and say, I'm going to do that one today with somebody that I don't know. You get all those cameras on all the entryways that neglect can creep in. And I guarantee you, you make this church not just a sticky place, but you make it an amazing platform for anybody that finds themselves out there longing to be remembered. Uh, we shared about this last night, and this is going to be the last thing. Um, you know, grief is an inevitability in the world that we're in. One of the things that makes the church special in every age is that they tap into the cultural curiosities and questions, the things that our world can't solve, and they show how the resurrection uniquely applies to that. When it comes to grief, um, especially as I look at the age of the folks here inside of this church, you know, when you're younger, in your 20s, Facebook and all that stuff, Instagram is full of people getting married, babies. You cross 30 and 40, and it's full with people losing loved ones. One simple way that you can make sure people aren't neglected as you talk through grief is whenever anybody passes or loses a loved one, you take that date, you write it in your Google calendar, and you set a yearly reminder. Um, because when somebody dies, oh, they're surrounded with love and support. But a year from that date, do you know what you can feel like? People forgot about me. They neglected me because I'm in the minority. I haven't lost anybody. And a church's simple act of remembering people can remind us that we're never forgotten by our God. Fighting for unity is in your job description. You've got an important role every single time you step into these doors. I pray you would go with the grace and the power that exists in the spirit of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, once again, we are grateful for the fact that we came to you with a great need and you met our need with wisdom and grace and patience, Father. We ask that you would make um, us a people that are eager to show that uh, you don't forget us by the ways that we practically look out for the needs of those who can feel neglected, distressed, or forgotten. 
Give us grace as we do your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope this message was encouraging to you. We invite you to send us an email at info at bridgechurchnyc.com so we can hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Our handle on all our social media platforms is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we would love to see you on a Sunday. Our services are at 1030 a.m. and noon on Sundays at 345 Adams Street in downtown Brooklyn. Thanks for listening to our podcast today, and we hope to see you soon.